my push to the person is like, oh, you sound like a boomer talking about wokeness. It's like, okay, so first of all, what is, if, if, it, if it's going away in, in this magic thinking world where this intellectual tradition that's basically existed since cutting off Charles I's head in England, Whig history, what, what's it getting replaced with? So if it gets rebranded as basically the same thing towards driving towards this equality of outcome, egalitarianism, which is Christianity, we, we live in this special time where we're at the end of history. You're basically saying that this time it's different and yeah, it's, it's going away. So stop spending time on it. It's like, okay, cool. You're, you're downstream. Yeah. Like someone with a framework for what's actually happened in history to realize this isn't going to go away. It might get rebranded or it might go away, you know, for the last year of the Biden presidency or it's kind of tamped down. But what happens when Trump gets reelected? Right. If, if that if that's a scenario or DeSantis, do you think do you think people are uh, are, are going to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm just back at my job and focus. No, all the same shit's going to happen that just happened before. Welcome to another episode of Moment of Zen. Antonio was stuck at ETH Denver. So it's just Dan and I this week. We had a great episode. We talked about why understanding philosophy matters if you're trying to build an organization or company of any kind, why you should understand moral primitives the same way you understand technological primitives. As our good friend Catherine Boyle likes to say, if you can't compete in history, compete on philosophy. To that end, we talk about why American culture is the most powerful cultural exporter globally. We unpack our theory that egalitarianism is eating the world in contrast to software is eating the world. And we describe what descriptive and predictive power that theory has. If you knew about that theory 15 years ago, what could you have predicted? We talk about the ideas behind wokeness and why they aren't going anywhere, even if it seems to be dampening. We talk about why equality of opportunity is equality of outcome. And I propose we retire that phrase. Okay, on to the show. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. Moment of Zen is brought to you by Riverside, the platform Dan, Antonio, and I use to record all of our podcast episodes with remote guests. Riverside captures exceptional audio and video quality, makes it incredibly easy for us to record conversations with multiple guests and then edit and publish within minutes. If you're hosting a podcast, are often getting interviewed, use our code ZEN to get a 20% discount at Riverside FM. The link is in our description box. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. 
I believe in the company so much I invested in it and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Damn, where's Antonio? I don't know, man. We're, we're supposed to be recording right now. He's, uh, he's in East Denver, but he should be here. Friday night, today's Shabbat. <laughs> he tweeted that people aren't recognizing him for his startup or his book, but uh, that he's the guy in MOZ, which I think is good, good validation. I mean, we have, we have a group of fans. I, uh, I get a lot of inbound for people interested in Farcaster, and then they mention listening to the pod, which is surprising, given that I'm not a professional podcaster, neither is Antonio, and this is just getting off the ground. How would you characterize the MOZ audience? Like, uh, you know, a bit more intellectual, like what, what other things are they interested in? I think they're curious is the, is the word I would say. And, and they're just wanting to get exposed to new ideas and, and maybe not mainstream, whatever the mainstream narrative is, whether or not they agree with it, they, they at least want to hear things outside of that and not in the kind of cringe all in like, let's steal man every point. Uh, I, I think it's more. People kind of just want to hear about ideas, right? And I think like generally with news, you tend to get a little bit more onto whatever the narrative is and the tribalism that associates with that. Whereas if I think you step back and be a little bit more upstream uh, and, and talk about kind of like, okay, how can you how can you kind of frame this within history, philosophy, uh, whatever, academic, intellectual type stuff? And that's not to say that we're, I hate the term experts, but you know, we're, we're, we're kind of armchair people doing it too. Right. And, and so I think that there's a, there's a surety there of not saying it's like, oh, I'm listening to some academic who's now lecturing me on, on why you should think like this versus I think the three of us are pretty curious people. And we've been having these chat groups for the last few years and, and kind of basically taking what we're doing in a chat group and, and turning it into a public conversation. I think that that's resonating with people. Yeah. I think it's a good recipe for a podcast in general, like take an amazing group chat, turn it into a, to a podcast. You, you mentioned the word upstream. I was going to bring up that word. You know, if Moment of Zen wasn't called Moment of Zen, it's possible we might like the term upstream. I might use that for my, my individual podcast. But um, I think that, that gets at what we're trying to, what we're curious about is basically like, what, what is the source? Like when you unpack, like why that matters to know, like what's upstream of what, so that you can better understand kind of the uh, evolution of these ideas or the, or the, the root of it, like unpack the sort of upstreamness or, or why that matters. Well, to take the literal analogy of the river, the river and en enters the sea and, and kind of that you could use that as the kind of the, the mainstream or whatever. And then at different points in the river, by definition, a river is always going downhill, right? If you introduce something upstream in the river, everything below that is is going to be affected by it or polluted by it or, or, or whatever. And so really trying to understand the source of this stuff, you kind of are always going up river. It's like, okay, well, why, why do people have this belief system? Well, you could just say it always existed like that. Right. And, and this is the, the point I always make about something like dominion, which for me was a really eye opening book because Tom Holland, a classicist, not a religious person kind of just frames it from a historical standpoint of saying like, Hey, prior to Christianity, there's really not any popular moral system from an empirical standpoint. Like, and obviously there's a limited number of sources as you start to go back in history, but Indo-European culture, Greek culture, uh, Roman culture, the, 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 none of them like boost up the weak, 
right? And and this is kind of this unique innovation that happens with Christianity, and, and then it becomes this mind virus that, that takes over Western Europe. But but that's like a great example of if you just assume as a baseline, if you're kind of sitting in the ocean, that oh, to be a good person is to you know take care of those less fortunate than you, um, and that that that's the way humans have always operated. That is is, is quite ignorant, right? Like and and so. I think one of the appeals of history and, and, and trying to get more educated in terms of where these ideas come from and or people who've, who've tr tried to do this themselves is you get to a place where you can start to make decisions on how much to wait, right? Like how much do I want to wait Tom Holland's Dominion point of view versus Zihan's point of view versus, you know, some of the stuff that Mark loves to talk about, whether it's Nietzsche or, you know, you know, wh who is his, his new favorite guy? I can't even pronounce it. With Kadilhi? Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's like you getting exposed to those ideas and getting familiar enough with them and hearing people talk about them and interchangeable, right? Because you can be taking some 19th century person, swapping it in with some kind of, you know, Roman point of view or take something from the last 20 years and, and kind of try to start to develop a, a worldview that that is independent from what you learn from your your standard public school or, or fancy education in the United States or, or whatever country. And it, you, you, you start to become more of an independent thinker. And the more you get into that, it, it's the classic kind of uh, beginner's fallacy where you start to think that you know a lot and then you quickly realize how little you know. And if, if you're okay with that, it ends up becoming this amazing thing where you always realize there's more stuff to explore upstream. And so you, you, you shift into a, I kind of don't know anything about the world, keep giving me more ideas or ways to think about it so that I can better process and, and model what's happening. And I think I, I mentioned this on a previous podcast. I think that the, the biggest draw for me in this is I feel like it, getting informed about history better helps me understand how the world works from a systems level today, which makes me more effective both in my professional life, it's like, okay, how, how do I think about something like Farcaster? It's like, how do you bring this into the world based on a worldview of like, this is how the world works and, you know, people's incentives, like data versus reveal preference, all these, all these things that I'm thinking about in terms of what I'm trying to build are very much informed by this kind of like rich intellectual ta tapestry. And so I, I don't have as much time for it now. And so part of what's exciting is, you know, you get exposure to through some of these other people that you're following who are kind of synthesizing this stuff for you into tweet, tweet length or, or podcast, but also uh, having guests come on the podcast and be able to talk, talk through things. Right. It's like, I, I, we talked about it with Noah. I don't agree with Noah on most things. Like he's definitely left of, of where I sit on most issues, but the fact that he can articulate a point of view on so many topics that's rooted in some amount of, of kind of like, okay, there's a factual basis here. And then, a, then a point of view, that's an interesting intellectual person to engage with versus someone who's starting from the, here's the tribal answer. And I'm, I'm not actually going to have the, the kind of first principles or, or the mental exercise to even make, make my point of view. That's the, the number one thing I respect about Noah is I can read a Noah article, disagree with it, but I can actually say, damn, he's going to make a few good points here where if, if I don't actually go do the research on the other side to confirm my point of view, maybe, maybe I'm actually the one that, that is the kind of like tribal intellectually lazy one. And that's just an amazing feeling for someone who's in a learning mindset is to get exposed to someone who you feel like has a better reasoned and supported argument. And it's one of the reasons I love biology, right? Like biology and I don't agree on everything. And, you know, the classic line of like, 
Ology's right about 50% of things. The, the, the 50% that he's right about, that, that's the hard part to figure about. But the thing is, anytime Biology is making a point, basically making you think. And, and you either need to be like, I agree with this or disagree with this. Why do I do that? And, and it, the fact that he usually has some citation or, or primary evidence for it then puts you in a situation of, I can either disagree with him on a tribal mood affiliation basis, to use the Tyler Cowan word, or I can actually do the homework and be able to come back with a, a counterpoint or, or a, a point of view. And so going all the way back to this upstream thing, I think it's, it's extremely humbling anytime you run across someone who you feel is upstream of you, right? Like they, they basically know all the stuff that you do in terms of like how you think the world works, but then they know, you, you know, if you're, if you're interested in, you know, Burnham, they know the three people that influence Burnham, or you think you know a lot about Marx, and it's like, well, <laughs> I can just trace the intellectual history beyond that, because no, no one exists in a vacuum. It's not like any of these these intellectuals just sit in a room and then the idea pops into their head. It's it's the it's the kind of full exposure to the intellectual tradition before that, in addition to the the, the things that are happening in their world at that time. And so, I think that the upstream mentality means that like you'll there is no source. There is never going to be like you get to the spring and it's like oh this is where the river starts. It's just kind of an infinite river, and there's always more to to learn, which. I don't know, for a lifelong learner, that's, that sounds pretty good. That was great. It reminds me of the goodwill hunting uh, scene where he's like, uh, you remember Matt Damon's like, uh, what, what does he say? He's like, oh, you read that in class. You know, I bet you'll read this person next. You know? <laughs> yeah, like the Gordon Wood and, and kind of like the, the evolution of the Southern market-based economy. And he like kind of toasts him. And then, you know, $1.50 in late fees at the library. And then the guy goes back. He's like, yeah, but... Uh, you'll be serving my kids McDonald's on my way to my ski trip. And then he goes, at least I won't be on original, right? which is <laughs> the, the best get back. And then he drops the bus. And, but if there's a problem, maybe we could just go step, step outside. And he's like, oh, like a great, great scene, right? How, how you like them apples. Yeah. The, the, um, it's, it's, it's worth noting because I, one of the benefits, Ed Balji writes about this in his book, is, is it's for winning arguments. And winning arguments sounds kind of like um, you know, childish or something. But they're actually important to win when it's about, you know, where do people spend uh, their time and their money? I'll give you like people say that great entrepreneurs manifest labor and capital. And, you know, in, in order to accrue labor and capital, you have to inspire people. And people often focus on technological innovation, but they don't fully appreciate that a lot of the most inspiring movements also have uh, moral innovation as well, or a, mo a real moral substance to it. Like Bitcoin is not just a technological breakthrough. It also has an intellectual, you know, sort of uh, history and substance to it, whether it's the Austrian tradition or, or libertarianism or et cetera, like Ethereum with kind of its public goods philosophy. Like it, it's also borrowing from other traditions, like the network state, right? is not just a technological breakthrough. It's a whole like intellectual worldview. And uh, so I don't think these ideas, you know, may just make you a more independent thinker. I think they also make you a more effective entrepreneur. Totally. How do you kind of have this moral innovation? Well, you could just think of it from scratch. That's pretty hard to do. Or you could kind of understand you know, history, which is like, you can think of it like a set of moral primitives in the same way that like in tech, you know, Uber works because we can buy like iPhone plus GPS. That's like a technological primitive. Whereas like, if you understand, um, you know, Dominion, you understand like, I, you know, wokeness, for example, you combine like, uh, you know, intersectionality. That's like, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw. That's like a primitive combined with like Marx oppressed or oppressed you know, critical race theory, Derek Butler, like, these are all like, you know, whether it's moral movement or technological movement plus moral movement are like recombining different moral innovations in history. And it's, it's, it's worth understanding them to be able to do that better. 
Yeah, no, and and I think that the other thing is it's not like someone invented wokeism in a lab, right? Or or there was ever there it's like it's a moving target, right? It's like constantly evolving idea and 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 kind of vibe, right? But being able to kind of layer in the different kind of forces that contribute to that, right? It's like the the left's march through the institutions, right? Like I, I had no idea what that meant, right? I didn't know anything about it in college. The first 10 years I was working in Silicon Valley, didn't know about it. And then again in a chat group and I'm getting these like people dropping these things and I have time. So then I'm clicking Wikipedia and I'm just like, wait, there's a whole article about here how there's this kind of like thing that happened in the university system in the 60s at the same time that you kind of had all the the kind of like very public, uh, the, the stuff people talk about in terms of history, like, oh, like, you know, Chicago, uh, Democratic National Convention was at 68 and Woodstock and and all the legislation that gets passed. But arguably, you could you could take another worldview as like the actual most important thing that happened in the 60s is the start of this trend, which, you know, kind of got us to a place where universities now don't have a rich intellectual tapestry. It's, it's a giant bunch of groupthink. But what's interesting about that is, A, you don't get taught that in school, right? Like there's a limited amount of stuff. People tend to focus on like what they can see versus these kind of like subtle changes. And if you go through, you know, the standard American college education, you major in something. And, and I would even argue like, and I wasn't a history major, but if you major in history, I would, if you pulled thousand uh, history grads, not, not academic, like people who end up going into, um, you know, like graduate school, like people who majored in history and then ended up working in know, banking or marketing or, or any of these jobs. And, and you took those history grads and you said, what's the left's march through the institutions? What's the uptake there? 1% of people will know what it is or something. And, but, but like, so what's interesting is because there's just so much stuff going on, you don't get exposed to this in, in a more traditional way. And so you kind of have to start pulling the threads. And what I think is so cool about Substack specifically is it's given a voice to a whole bunch of these people who are outside of academia, but are very interested in ideas and interested in that, that kind of like, well, what's upstream or, or kind of the evolution of this stuff. Curtis is a, a you know, the, kind of most controversial person of this. But I, the, the thing that he's most famous for is if you go read his old blogs, it's like every fifth word is a Wikipedia link. And so you you can take his argument, which you can agree with or not, or you know, you could say, hey, like I, I find this distasteful. I don't like his writing style. But you get to click through to the Wikipedia links. And then you can start to develop a worldview, right? So when he says something about South Africa, which I think he said some pretty uh, incendiary things related to, to the history of apartheid in South Africa, like in, in his writing, you can click through and, and read the links and, and you can make the determination on, you know, was Nelson Mandela X or Y, like the, 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 or, or you can go read a book because on Wikipedia, there are going to be more citations. And so I, I think that is the, the thing I feel like I was kind of like cheated with, with from my education, because, you know, I went to like a fancy college and all that kind of stuff is like, basically, you don't get exposed to any of that, or, or there is no kind of like, here are the great ideas. And, and, and maybe maybe some places do that still. But I think generally, it's like this a la carte, like, I'm a, I'm a major in this is kind of like the wrong frame, given that most people don't end up in graduate school. So like this, this like specialization, I think is, is a, is a kind of like flaw. Modulo, I do think, there should be a much bigger incentive for people to actually get some hard skills from, from college for the most part. So like my perfect world is like, you have to major in something in science, like forced, like there is no like opt out and then science or math. And then, then you get to pick like your kind of like intellectual area that you want, or, or you just get exposed to a wide variety of ideas. 
there are going to be people who are liberal arts majors who disagree with that, but you're talking as an English major, it's like that degree is absolutely worthless in, in the real world. And I think the only thing you can get out of a liberal arts degree is, is curiosity and wanting to expand your mind. But to the Matt Damon point, I don't, I don't think you need a degree unless you're going to go into, to, you know, graduate school and all that stuff. But even there, I'd say, if you start with a baseline general intellectual tradition, Going and majoring in, in, you know, master's in literature or PhD in literature just feels like just do an extra year of, of grad school or something. Yeah. So I think it'd be good for us. You know, sometimes people, our audience will say that we'll go, we'll mention names, we'll go too fast, not really explain them. But I think we should take this episode and, and some future episodes and do a deep dive on some of the thinkers that have most influenced our worldview and kind of maybe like some of whom who've influenced kind of like Silicon Valley worldview at large or as, as it's developing. And, and maybe we'll start with with Holland. Holland is interesting. You know, you, you mentioned Dominion. I'll, I'll tell you what I took from from Holland, and then I'll have you un- unpack some of it a bit and, and say what you shared from Holland. One is this idea that Christianity introduced so many things to the world that did not exist before Christianity. The concept of a, of an individual, even uh, you know, before that, the atomic unit was the was the clan, was the family, but the idea of an individual was invented. There's this great book called Inventing the Individual in order to have a closer you know, relationship to God. We, we ended up discarding the relationship to God part, but we kept the individual part. The, the idea of, um, I mean, the biggest one is, is kind of the moral inversion, the, you know, from master morality, where what's important is that you're strong, that you're powerful, that you win, to slave morality, which is important, what's important, that you're compassionate, that you're humble, that you're egalitarian, and it's kind of the, you know, slave morality is the first shall be last, the last shall be first, the meek shall inherit the earth. And um, slave morality as a tool of the of literal slaves back in the day, but as anyone who was not the, the masters actually won. Um, and you could see how that morality, and we'll, we'll, I'll expand on that in a bit, but has permeated and just continues to, to get stronger and almost like a spiral, uh, con- you know, continues to get more and more slave morality oriented or justice oriented or egalitarian oriented. But, but this idea that Christianity, it, its kind of downfall, at least among elites, was was partially because it wasn't, you know, people will focus on the sort of metaphysical aspects, but really the, the, the reason it had to go was that in some ways it wasn't Christian enough. This idea of human rights that Christianity introduced did not, uh, they did not extend those human rights to uh, to gay people, for example, or, or other groups of people, or they, they did not extend it, you know, and so in some ways, the people who overthrew Christianity were more Christian than the Christians and are enacting sort of the fruits of what Christianity invented and they're just not calling it Christianity. That, that was kind of mind-blowing to me. I'm, why don't you unpack uh, what, what you took from Holland? Yeah, so a couple of things. So one, I've read his other books. So he has a book on Islam, which is really good. He has, um, I'm not going to get all of them, but he has a book uh, on on the Caesars, which I think is, a, is an excellent book. Um, and then he has one on Persia, which is actually probably my favorite other than Dominion. I think it's called Persian Fire. So this is a this is a scholar. He's an amazing podcast, by the way. If you if you like history, like Tom Holland, it's incredible the output that podcast. And you can just find any topic. I think they're up at like three hundred episodes now. And he's got this really pleasant British accent and and like so I guess English accent. But but anyways, it's uh he's he's just phenomenal in terms of the breadth that he covers. But what's amazing about Dominion is he he really tries to connect the kind of Persian tradition of religion, right? So Arianastrianism and this kind of like light versus dark concept mixed with the intellectual tradition of the Greeks, not the, not the polytheistic mythology of the Greeks, 
but the the Greek philosophers, which have a huge impact on Christianity. And then obviously Judaism, which like there's a reason we say Judeo-Christian, right? There's an interesting thing here is like, I, I went to Catholic school and high school and I had to take theology classes and I just thought that they were the most boring things in the world and like, you know, whatever. And what was interesting is that that book actually made me want to get back into really deeply understanding the history of Christianity. I ended up reading um, a book on the history of the papacy because that that was also kind of a thread that, and I was off, so I had time. But but the idea that like the average educated person in the U.S. today, probably not religious, yet they don't have any baseline understanding. Like they couldn't really walk you through the high level points about Christianity, the intellectual tradition, how it deviated from Judaism. Like so many of the references, like Christ references, which for, for most of intellectual history post Christianity, like all art and everything is, is kind of like tied to, to religion. But that it, it, it's that that kind of goldfish quote where it's, it's the water that's surrounding us all the time. And the fact that most people just dismiss it because they think big man in the sky, that's that's for for kind of people who don't understand science is like the biggest midwit meme ever. You don't have to be religious, but like to not have like a baseline understanding of this incredibly pervasive force, specifically in the Western world. Right. Because you can think of the, the kind of like major religions that actually have like practicing adherence. Christianity, Islam, and and Hinduism, right? Like, uh, because, you know, you can say Buddhism, but like, if you actually kind of look into it, it, it it's kind of like less, less of like a, a structured religion versus those, those three mega religions, right? And the West is basically all Christian. So like we talk about Joseph Heinrich's book, Weird, which we can talk about later, but like so much of that tradition is influenced by the fact that after the Roman Empire goes away, all of the the pagan new kind of like warlord kingdoms flip over to this this new religion. Every single one of them, right? So it, it, it's it's almost like imagine if the the U.S. government goes away tomorrow, and now every uh, town is run like Chaz or Chop, like in Seattle, where you have like a local warlord is is kind of in charge strong man, like that, that's just like natural human behavior is like, there's going to be a group, they're going to extort, like, you know, monopoly on violence, all the, you know, kind of theory of government. And then there's like this, like one little group of people in DC that have this like magic woke religion, and they, they wear a funny hat. And they're somehow able to convince all of these warlords across the United States that, hey, you know what? You can be in charge and you can kind of do whatever you want in your own area. That's fine. But why don't you just like kiss this ring every once in a while and we'll give you kind of official blessing that you're now woke. That's basically what happened with Christianity. And so you get this, you know, thousand plus year period where you have one kind of guy in a funny hat. Yeah, technically they split with with uh, the you know Greek Orthodox people, but the guy in Rome is wearing this funny hat and, and he's kind of superseding all these uh, rulers. And then you run into the Protestant revolution where it actually then breaks it off and it becomes even more individual, right? Like your relationship with God. And, and then it's just, a, it's a cascading spiral. And I got a, yeah, you, Eric, uh, share some of your comments in, in a chat. So I'm usually a not read the comments guy, unless Eric shares it in the chat. And, and someone was saying that I, I didn't make a better case on the Protestantism. 
So first of all, you have the split with the Protestant Reformation. 30 years war, like up until that date, like basically the, the most brutal war in terms of like total number of deaths, just like absolutely devastates the, the countrysides of, of, you know, Germany and all these places. And it's, it's just pure religious fighting, uh, Christians versus uh, Christians, right? We have Protestants versus Catholics. And then um, out of that, you start to get these crazier and crazier Protestant groups with, with, that are trying to show how pure they are thus the, the Puritans in, in the UK. And so you have a period in you know, the 1600s in, in the UK where they, they chop the head off the king. Like the, the, and and it's, it's because the, the, the group of people who are in this kind of rebel army uh, led by Oliver Cromwell didn't think that they were going far enough. And, and so you have these guys, the levelers and the diggers, which are like kind of proto-communist, like you know, we, should, we should give everything. And, and it's this just kind of extreme push towards the kingdom of God on earth needs to lift up everyone. And then you get it to the US where obviously Puritanism has a deep intellectual tradition given the, the pilgrims and then the general kind of like wasp culture that runs the country. But yeah, it's, it's just like, if, if you can't even have like a baseline understanding of like how important that intellectual tradition is on how 21st century politics in the US work today, because you think big man in the sky sounds dumb. Again, midwit meme in my, my opinion. So that, that to me is, is Holland. And, and the other thing is, so Mary Beard is another classicist, uh, another English classicist. She wrote a book, SBQR, that is very long and, and it's good. But I think that the thing I took away from that book that, that kind of marries a little bit into this kind of like master-slave morality thing that you bring up is, so the Roman Empire is like the whole thing is powered with slaves. Like that, that's like the business. It's you conquer this other territory, you bring people in into slavery, but what was really interesting compared to, and, and you know, Beard cites this compared to the Greeks or others, is there was actually a very clear path towards freedom within the Roman citizenship process. And that was actually another interesting innovation that we have today in the United States that the Romans did, is you could not, you didn't have to be born in Italy to become a Roman. And this idea that like it, traditionally in any of these empires prior there was kind of this, oh, well, I'm a Greek, even if I live in Egypt, so therefore I am better. Whereas with uh, the Roman Empire, especially during the empire period, there became a shift towards Romanness and becoming a Roman, even if you were a slave. And so there's a whole bunch of examples of emperors who, who either were born in the periphery and not originally Roman, moved, you know, whether through military success or, or stuff like that, and then ended up becoming powerful or, or ended up becoming a, an emperor. And so you can actually equate it to the United States, where basically the only other comparable place where you could have immigrants or immigrant groups within a generation running a country from at least the kind of head of state is Rome, Rome in the U.S., right? And, and like the U.K. is actually, the, I think the first time is like Rishi Sunak is like, okay, now you actually have someone who's part of the empire from a kind of ethnic group that is now in the U.K., very, you know, obviously British, running the country. But to think that, you know, the Irish, no, no job need apply. And then within a hundred year period that Jack Kennedy was president. And, and so like, I think the U.S. has this very uh, like important idea that you can assimilate to becoming an American. And, and that was actually a part of the Roman uh, tradition that I thought was interesting, which obviously makes it even more interesting that the, the, the kind of low classes and slaves were the ones that were actually propagating Christianity initially. So it was like kind of a, 
an important dynamic of the of the empire, right? Because if you didn't have as much dependency on slaves, then maybe Christianity never takes hold. And and that leads us to the uh, the Henrik because uh, the weird book because I think with without that, you know, we we have some friends who've been bearish on on American culture uh, or, or just America the past few years, and even putting aside Zihan, literally just from a cultural standpoint, if you have a more sophisticated understanding of the weird philosophy, you understand how universalizing it is and how effective it is. Uh, you know, Amjad brought up in the last podcast, the idea of kinship and, uh, and the sort of marriage outside, outside the family, you know, weird, famously um, banned cousin marriages, I, I thought it was. Uh, and so societies that, that marry, that inbreed are much more insular much more parochial, much more narrow, whereas uh, cultures that, you know, mix uh, marriage or marriage outside the clan are much more universalizing, much more trying to, you know, aggregate and homogenize. And and so I think if you had a better sophisticated understanding of that, you would be more bullish on the power of, uh, of American culture. Yeah. I mean, weird, weird two things that are just like imprinted in my head. One is actually, I think, less answered, but just feels worth digging into is this idea that once you have the printing press, people's brain chemistry starts changing because like what you're adapting towards, not, not genetically as much as just, uh, I don't know if epigenetic is the right term, or it, it's this idea that so much more of how you are experiencing the world is coming through these weird symbols on paper and is very abstract. And if you just kind of take the entire, you know, cumulative history of humanity to think of where we are today, where a vast majority of the population on earth can do some amount of literacy, that that's pretty crazy. And now obviously with a smartphone where it's in your pocket and it's kind of this like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy science fiction thing that you just could tap into the world's knowledge. That's, that's uh, pun intended weird. Like in the sense that it's like, we, I, I still think we haven't really grokked, like the smartphone came out less than a, you know, two decades ago. Like, we, we are still going through a fundamental transformation and now we're going to go layer AI on top of that. I think it's going to be a little while before it, people really grok like, okay, how, how does this actually change humanity? So we're, we're in the early, early innings of that. And then I think the second one, which, uh, look, I'm, my entire uh, ancestry is all Western, right? So I don't have any Eastern tradition in, in anything in terms of other than what I read, right? But what's interesting is the distinction of shame versus guilt. And I, I can't get that out of my head because basically Western society is guilt powered, right? And, and shame is this thing that you feel default in an Eastern society, at least based on what Hyrink is saying, because you, you're thinking about kinship networks and, and kind of family as, as kind of the, the, the unit versus in the kind of like Western intellectual tradition, very much driven by Christianity and the Enlightenment. It's like, no, I am this single atom and I like, I, I have career goals and all these other things that are, uh, you know, very Western, which we, by the way, have exported everywhere else around the world. Um, so I, I think of those two things as the, the stuff that I can't get out of my head. And I think what, what's interesting about that book is it, I think people now use it as, as the best terminology for, for the West, right? Like, cause the West, you know, has a lot of baggage associated with that, but to kind of be like weird which is essentially, it's like American culture or, you know, Anglo, Anglosphere culture that's been exported everywhere, in, including capitalism and, and, and Christianity with that. I don't know. I, I think that is a, 
an interesting frame to to really try to be like, okay, what are the other alternative moral philosophies that billions of people around the world might have? And uh, just like operating systems, right? Like, and and again, I, I I wasn't born in India, I wasn't born in China, so hard for me to be able to like reason about that outside of you know reading something on paper and then talking to other people maybe with that experience. It is interesting where the um, you know there's this focus on West exporting culture or on on exporting American values, and there's this broader question as to like what are really the American values that are that are being exported and successfully like. We tried to export democracy. Unclear how, how much that, that's worked. Um, you know, is it freedom of speech? Uh, maybe maybe it's capitalism, but it also perhaps it's it's the it's the rainbow flag, which to some represent like uh, or to many represents like diversity, a pluralism, kind of a you know social progress. And I, I would think that like there are countries today that are impervious to that in the moment. They're certainly not feminist. They're certainly not celebrating diversity. But is the next generation going to be impervious? Like those are pretty powerful ideas. And, and they they appeal to, to ideas that have resonated for for millennia. Uh, the idea of the, you know, the, the, the powerless, the, the, the meek shall inherit the earth, you know, it, more, right, let me, moral equality, right? And so it's unclear uh, how much the democratic institutions or or certain freedoms really are the core thing that we're exporting, even though we've certainly tried, or is it some of these more cultural or social values that maybe those tools were instruments to introduce those, those values in, in, in the U S but, uh, you know, can be exported w- without them. I'm, I'm curious how, how you react to that. Well, I, I think that there's like the hard power version, like Americans get involved in a bunch of people's conflicts, whether it's shipping weapons, drone striking, putting boots on the ground, military bases, like, so, so there's the, the hard power export and the reality of that. But I, I think Afghanistan being a good example, you run a war for 20 years and you withdraw and within a couple of weeks, the government disappears and you're back to where you started, um, except that they have smartphones. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah, and, 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 and they're complaining about office jobs or whatever, which is getting to my second point of, um, I think consumer culture, which again, an individual, and it's this idea of like the things that I can get, like, from market-based capitalism, right? Walmart, I think media, right? Hollywood, the, those are the two, that that soft power is, that's the, to use the, Paul Scalas is is known as Lindy Man um, on Twitter and as a Substack. Someone else on our podcast got into a little beef with him. Uh, so formerly a Substack, but um, he, he has a firm, uh, a frame called 1000 Year American Empire. We talked about it with Mark, but um, interesting idea where, even if the U.S. is in kind of decline, people are kind of all LARPing U.S. stuff, right? It's like, well, there were there were protests in Europe for the George Floyd situation, like that. That's incredible soft power for for like these, this is a it's a domestic issue in the United States, and you have people in solidarity in France. That like what what issue in France are people protesting? in the US, right? Like that, that's just a super simple example. Like what, what international event is happening that people in the US are, are in, in serious numbers taking to the streets? Whereas when something in the US happens, uh, you know, like people were protesting Trump in, in, in Berlin and like, it's just, so 
you you can live in a in a frame that like countries are kind of equivalent because we have this like United Nations and it seems egalitarian. But the, but the reality is it's like the only two countries that really kind of like matter at at scale in terms of geopolitics and an effect on on the world right now. I, in my view, it's it's the U.S. and China. I mean, obviously Russia is meddling in Ukraine and it's a horrific humanitarian and just like devastating number of people killed. But they 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 can't win their war. Like they haven't made really any progress. So it's like the only two countries that have serious heft, I, I think, are are the US and and China. And then something we we argue with Balaji on. Are other countries rising? Sure, but I think there's a long way before that happens. And this is my always biggest critique about China. So there's a bunch of stuff that China is doing probably better than the US. Hard to trust some of that data. But if if you want to just kind of give them the benefit of the doubt there. The thing that they're not doing, there is no cultural export. So they're not even the biggest cultural exporter in Asia. They're, they're, they're like maybe third place. I, I don't even know enough. It's like Japan and Korea, way bigger cultural exporters in terms of global recognition of both Japanese culture and, and Korean culture, uh, at least from a consumer standpoint, right? Like music and, and, and media. But the like biggest thing China has exported outside of you know cheap products designed in other places uh, is uh, TikTok. Right, so they bought an American company, took ByteDance with actually real real technology on the AI side, and made this phenomenally successful app uh, that has all these American companies scrambling to to compete with. So like that's a that's a massive massive cultural export and, and tool. But other than that, what else has like Sheen or like what, whatever that like clothing brand? Come on, like uh, you know, are, are the people that who are who are fancy and cool and in the media wearing any of that stuff? No. Like they're not, it's, it's, so I, I think like American consumer culture is the thing that is the most pervasive to get into these countries. And I actually think causes the most consternation for the people in power, because as a result of that consumer culture, both in the, I want more economic opportunities so I can buy more stuff and watching American TV and, and movies, you start to get like, Oh, well, these people should have more rights, right? Like, I, I want to go to school. Like, I, I, the American colleges look cool. Like, why can't we we have some more of that, right? And so I think that that is the single, like, biggest source of American power, uh, other than, obviously, the fact that we have a bunch of nuclear weapons and, like, can drone strike anyone on Earth at any different point. But, like, in terms of, like, actually changing countries, Afghanistan is the counterexample where it's, like, none of that stuff matters, whereas... If these some of these memes you're seeing about the Taliban, where they're like they're bored at their office jobs and they kind of want to go back to the time that they were fighting in the fields and being like, it just sounds like app Twitter, like, <laughs> like it, it, it. So it's it's effectively American soft power is is actually the thing that's potentially going to change over maybe 20, 30, 40 years, where the next generation is like, okay, I don't want to go back to this like hardcore theocracy. Why why can't we nudge it a little bit more? And 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 you're even starting to see it like. Um, by no means has has this changed. The guy sawed a, a journalist. But MBS is of the younger generation in Saudi Arabia. He is making a bunch of changes. And one question is you'd be like, oh, it's Machiavellian, he's trying to do whatever, versus the other, the other flip side of that is he grew up consuming a bunch of American media and culture. And then he's like, well, I want to be considered cool too, right? And 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 you know, I want Cristiano Ronaldo to come and play soccer in my country. And I I want, you know, uh, the golf. And so it's like that that has nothing to do with like Islam like that. That is all like in terms of a in theory, the kingdom is a theocracy. It's like he's bringing in 
Western American consumer culture effectively into, into his country. So does that change over the next 50 years? I don't know. Well, it's worth mentioning how tied in consumer culture and social progressivism are. And I think one example of that is you'll see, uh, you know, TikTok in the U.S. versus TikTok in China look drastically different, right? Um, China's, uh, you know, in terms of the type of content that, that that's on there, because China is engaging a lot of social engineering, right? They, I believe they're banning feminine looking men or gay looking men. Like they are trying to have consumer culture or capitalism and the growth that that brings without some of the, the cultural corollary um, add-ons that typically, uh, or that have accompanied it in the, in the West, but also more broadly. And it's unclear if that will really hold. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, American consumer culture upstream of that, like is the, is the celebrity culture, right? Like that, like all the consumer brands, like who do you have pitch your product or, or be associated with it? It's, it's a celebrity, right? And then the purest version of that is, is Kim Kardashian, right? She's famous for being famous and has built businesses and, and, and incredible entrepreneur. And, and, you know, she is a business, right? Man, like the, the joke. Um, but I think that, that, so if you, if you have the, the kind of fancy people are, are basically upstream of the consumer culture, well, fancy people get near other fancy people who, whether they're educated, fancy people or progressive, fancy people. And, now those those ideas rub off. So now the celebrity who didn't have to to you know didn't care about any political issue now gets famous and is like, oh well, mood affiliation here. Like I I want to be seen as being progressive and hip and cool. So I'm gonna take this position publicly. I don't know if that person actually has that point of view, but they think maybe it's it's good for for the consumer. So so then it creates this kind of symbiotic, self-fulfilling prophecy where the more celebrities that do that the more kind of like it influences consumers, which then that new celebrities are like, oh, well, I, I want to maximize my addressable market, right? And then and that's why you get all these Fortune 500 companies that are, are kind of viewing it through, they're not founder-led, so it's not like someone's particular point of view. They are, they are TAM maximizing, total addressable market. They're like, what can I say that's not going to get me in trouble with this group over here, but gets me the right mood affiliation with the group that cares about it and, and, and increases the TAM. And I think like the reality is, is that the average American, whether they like it or not, like celebrity culture influences some of the stuff that they think about. The counter to that, though, is like, you know, we always bring up this line. Michael Jordan had the famous line where it's like Republicans buy sneakers, too. I, I don't actually want to take a, a point of view. But I, I actually don't have a good answer. I, I would imagine a few of our friends could give us like a, a history of like, okay, what happened from the 90s to 2020, where whenever there's some regulation that is a culture war issue in a state, that this whole group of like Fortune 500 companies immediately makes a statement when they know that there's, that's going to be portrayed on Fox News, which is a large percentage of the country, to be a negative. Yeah, I, I think a few things happen. One, one is education polarization. So, you know, one third of the country goes to college, two thirds don't. Uh, the, the third that goes to college is mostly progressive. 80% Democrat. Yeah, and, and that's who populates these these companies. Yeah, professional managerial class. Yeah, and so they think that they represent the, the, the populace. But then two, they also have, they also so they maybe represent one third of the population, but they represent, you know, probably more than half of the consumer spend because they're wealthier. 
it is interesting. People, some people will say, hey, go woke, go broke, but it doesn't look like these companies are going broke. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe there's always a certain line, you know, and Disney may, maybe, maybe crossed it to, for their business prospects. But yeah, there has been this, this, this shift and it's probably because of, you know, partly because of education polarization and class reorientation where the, the left just constitutes more of the, more of the spend. Yeah. And I think that there's also one of my favorite frameworks in the last couple of years, building a consumer product is stated versus reveal preference, right? So I might go signal to my, my group, whether that's on Twitter or even at a dinner party, oh, can you believe how woke Disney got, has got? But then when your four-year-old wants to watch Frozen, yeah. <laughs> or you're really a big Star Wars nerd and you want to watch the latest season of Andor or Mandalorian and you pay for Disney Plus. So it's like, okay, great. In the privacy of your own home, you're, you know, you, you, you're anti-woke when you need to virtue signal, but the reality is you're willing to pay for that content because you actually don't care that much. Yeah. Who, who's going to drop an iPhone because of their practices in China? Like who's going to not use Great example. Like this is a classic, and I mean, it's a classic tech example. Everyone's like, oh, I'm our open ecosystem. You know who I'll give credit to? Fred Wilson uses an Android phone out of principle. And like, I don't know if you've ever used an Android phone. Like Android phones to me are unusable. There are some interesting features. The fact that it's open is, I think, very cool. Does Apple stifle a lot of innovation through their policies? Absolutely. But the reality is, is like all of the little tiny details on, on using an iPhone, I, I, you could never get me to switch. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's like, I mean, Antonio, he's not here, so we can talk about him. I mean, he was let go from Apple for some bullshit, right? Like something he wrote like six years ago in a memoir that was like, you know, taken out of context. Uh, you know, it's like as if people were, you know, taking fiction writers and like it, it's just, and taking things out. Of, I mean, it's just a crazy thing. And they fired him, you know, cowardously. And um, I was typing that furiously on my iPhone, not even thinking for a second that I would ever change my preferences. Antonio does use Android, by the way. So well, <laughs> I will give him credit. He is a another rare person who out of principle <laughs> uses yeah. the, the vastly inferior product. Well, he's more skin in the game in, in that one. Jokes about Antonio and skin in the game. Wow. Just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> skin in the game in multiple ways. Um, the, uh, I, I think, you know, one reason to understand all this stuff is not just to understand what's happening now, but also to help predict, you know, where things are going, right? Like software eats the world as, as our, uh, Mark, you know, wrote about a decade ago, over a decade ago was like, why was that an important idea? Because it was not just describing what was happening. It was also giving a mental model to think about what was going to happen. And thus, as an entrepreneur, you could look through industries that have not been permeated by software and, you know, think of business ideas because one day they would be. And uh, some people say, oh, you know, health, there are some industries that haven't been permeated by software, like healthcare, education, you know, construction, whatever. But, but it will be, right? Um, and there's just kind of like a inevitability to, to that. We talked about the last episode of like, you know, aligning AI or within the context of aligning capitalism is not a crazy idea in, in terms of like trying to think through how a, you know, something that optimizes for its own growth, um, you know, can have a stop to it. I, I think similarly, there is a kind of paperclip maximizing tendency or, or like inevitability to uh, this idea of like slave morality or justice or egalitarianism. Uh, eating the world in the sense that anything that can be disrupted by software and that doesn't have external like things preventing it will be disrupted by software. And I think similarly, like anything that can become more egalitarian will try to become and, and might become more egalitarian over time in the same way that like 
any market opportunity, an entrepreneur will exploit it at some point. Any kind of like inequality, some moral entrepreneur, whether that's a startup or whether that's an activist or, or some other organization, will try to exploit it. And they'll have some sort of moral credibility because the, the idea of uh, reducing inequality is so baked into our you know, the water in which we swim in. And so I think if you, you know, understood that a decade ago, you would have been able to predict some of the not just moral thing, uh, you know, movements that, that were to occur, but you could also predict uh, businesses that would help accelerate them. You could predict that businesses were going themselves were going to get involved in these issues. And I think similarly, you can predict what's to what's to come. Yeah, I I don't know. Like I'm now trying to run my brain through. It's like, what is the biggest business that has capitalized on wokeism? I don't, I don't actually think like, basically I think Instagram and all those things that allow people to express these general purpose tools, they kind of get captured by it. So you could argue it's like, Oh, it was a woke opportunity. I, I don't think, I think these things kind of are more emergent, but I do think one trend, if you extrapolate what, what's kind of been happening that did play out in Silicon Valley is this idea of like the activist employee, right? And so if you could go back 10 years, you, you know, hindsight 2020, but, but the idea is like, okay, I'm in this zero interest rate environment. So I'm hiring all these people and growth is the only thing that people care about growth, growth, growth versus like, you know, actual profitability and dollars returned to shareholders and all that kind of stuff. And if I just continue hiring all these people, these people coming out of these universities are increasingly on the leading edge of whatever the next cause is. And they don't actually have any civic institution or, or religion that they're spending time in, right? They're living these atomized existences in these coastal cities. And so I'm going to now use work as the way to, and, and now a tool like Slack shows up and it basically turns into kind of like the Iowa caucuses every single day where it's like, you can argue your point and then you get all these like, you know, the, the Slack, the Slack emojis, uh, you know, Slacktivism, right? And so I, I think if you extrapolate that out though, like, okay, so we, we saw that happen and try to kind of put some framework around that. What is a world where A, zero interest rates probably don't exist for a while? I mean, biology would tell you that they're going to turn the inflation printer on soon. So we may be, may be wrong there, but model out, okay, the scenario where you do think cost of capital is higher. So this infinite hiring is not going to happen. Two, we're post-COVID, so now we have remote work, Overton windows increased. Uh, three, you're having this massive productivity boom that's going to happen. I, I think it's overestimated in the short term, underestimated in the long term uh, in terms of AI. And I think Amjad is a great example of like giving us a framework to think about, hey, you may have some startups, but for the most part, it seems like if I'm a Series C company, Notion or whatever, I'm going to actually benefit the most from these large language models. And if you just kind of extrapolate that out, it's like, and I, I'm, I'm as an entrepreneur now, the number of ops people, I have zero ops people at, at my company because Rippling has taken so much of that work that an early, you know, company that, you know, is 10-ish people, you might've had one or two ops people just because it's like, okay, all these other things that you need to do. It's like, I, I hired an employee in, in, you know, Texas and Rippling sends me an email being like, you need worker compensation insurance, click this button to get it. And I'm just like, okay, great. Boom. So that, that's like a software company eating the world there. And there's just like all these old jobs that you would have had to do. And then you throw some AI on, on top of that and it just makes it even more productive. 
So if you just kind of play that out, it's you're going to have these fewer companies, fewer people at companies. And when you have fewer people at companies, it's easier to actually have a much closer knit group of people that may have a like closer on average set of beliefs versus when you have a thousand person company. And most of the way that people are interacting is in these like big public Slack channels. And so trying to like extrapolate that out, I, I think you could say that, oh, we're going to have more right-wing companies. I, I don't actually think that's the case. But I do think you're going to have less workplace activism as a result of just, I think that this, the companies are going to get much more efficient and the environment probably is going to require that, right? Like the Elon mentality of like, okay, let's get back to work and actually make money here, not be Twitter that in its entire existence is a public company, I'm pretty sure they never made money. Like that's an insane, because it wasn't like they had like this crazy growth engine where it was like, oh yeah, we'll eventually make money. It was just like, they kind of like chugged along and people were willing to fund that. And so I think we're, we're now in an environment where I think job security is also going to be something that people think about a lot more where it's, it's, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I can't have a temper tantrum and then just immediately go get a really high paying job at Google. Google's not hiring. Right? if you're an AI person, you could get a job, but I think that the, you know, the average liberal arts major, like you better hold on to that job that you have and, and work your ass off because like a, AI is coming for a lot of those roles from a total aggregate amount of work. And B, I just don't think we're going to be in an environment where people are thinking in this like infinite hiring, they're going to be very focused on efficiency. And so, so that, that's where it's like, I, I do think trying to have some frameworks for that, but then also taking the mentality of what happened in the last 10 years and if you had had the information before, could you have figured it out and then try to like take the trends that are happening now and then and try to play, play things forward? Yeah. One challenge when we bring up the word um, wokeness is that some people uh, just one tune out to th th think it has a, you know, a negative connotation. Um, and so I, I and it, it, what it really is, is like it's a bundle of different things and it's often used in different times, different ways. So the way I, I mean it here to answer your original question, which is if you were to predict wokeness you know, what, what companies would you have predicted or like what would be different? I, I want to substitute wokeness with this desire to reduce uh, inequality across a identity-based lens, whether it's race, gender, sexual orientation, of other identities. And I, I think there's a few things you could have predicted. One is that businesses would appeal to different identity groups in different ways. Like think about all the companies that are appealing to women and also appreciating that women which you could have predicted are going to become a rise up in the workplace and more of a share of executive positions, of investor positions, of, of, of senior positions. And so like Chief, for example, is a business that you could have uh, incubated. Chief is like a YPO for women, women executives, right? Um, and, and it's doing phenomenal. It's a unicorn, I believe. Um, similarly, there are, uh, there's a health, Spora, I believe is a health company that's like one medical for black people, basically. And so I, I think X for Y is something that, you could have predicted these aren't necessarily all unicorns because inherently they're fragmenting you know identities and there are some company bigger companies that now market in different ways to different different identity groups to your point or, or to disagree with you i actually do think right-wing companies um will will emerge as these cultures continue to fragment not just on an identity basis but also on a on a i mean we might as well call conservatives and liberals different identity you know they they, they don't marry each other they don't they don't connect with, they're not friends with each other and so you know, you, you have commerce companies like MyPillow and social media companies like um, Gab. Oh, Gab is terrible. But like um, <laughs> Parler, the one that got banned. I mean, these are jokes now, but a, a lot of things start out as, as jokes. I, I do think there will be 
a parallel economy it, uh, to some degree that will be much bigger than it is today of right-wing companies that are worth tens of millions or hundreds of millions. I don't know, we're not gonna get the next like Facebook out of them, but I, I think that's that's a trend. I, I think you could have predicted, you know, companies go, going woke in, in, in Toto, um, the, the activist employees that you mentioned. I mean, there have been tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars to activist causes and activist organizations that did not exist 20 years ago in, in the same way. So they've redefined philanthropy. Anyways, this is just a sprinkling of if you, you know, internalized egalitarianism is going to eat the world like 15 years ago, and you saw some of the rhetoric that was coming out of universities um, and some of the departments that were forming in universities and some of the kind of intellectual, you know, structured substrate for, for some of these new ideas, you would be able to, you would be able to notice that when Matt Iglesias or Ezra Klein in 2013 says, hey, don't worry, it's just, uh, these are just some crazy college kids. You'd be able to say, they're not crazy college kids, or they're not just crazy college kids. These values are going to change uh, how organizations operate. They're going to give power to a younger set of people. Uh, you know, these rhetorical devices that are it, Barry Weiss chronicled the New York Times basically said the older journalists were terrified of of the younger journalists because they had these set of record, rhetorical devices that they didn't have an answer to that they that they couldn't they couldn't because they couldn't they care about equality too, uh, and so they were able to use the sort of verbal uh, you know, shield or weapon of, of equality to basically, uh, you know, ask for them to cede to their demands. Anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but here are some things that you could have predicted if you had internalized that viewpoint. Let me push back a little bit in that. So one, I think that like sub brands that are targeting a, a specific niche are always going to exist, but what what's the biggest outcome of something like that? And and maybe like I just don't get that interested in the smaller identity oriented group brands. But I, I just like Stitch Fix is a great example, right? It's probably one of the few companies targeted at a very specific. I don't know if they do stuff for men, but like or women public company. It's a five hundred million dollar company, right? Like the, the, you know, we don't live in twenty twenty one anymore, and so impressive. I haven't built a five hundred million dollar company, so like let, let's just like put that. And with a bow on top of that. But I think like most entrepreneurs and most people, they just want to build the best thing they possibly can build. And so I, I actually think generally people want to have the most potential customers. And, and if you're in whatever identity group, I, I don't look for products that are like, oh, is this for Latinx people? Like, oh, this is the one. Like, no, it's just like, I, I want to have the product that like people think is the best, right? And it's like, if you sell soap and it's like, this is the mood affiliation soap. No, I'm going to go to the wire cutter and I'm going to be like, okay, this is the best dish soap or, or dish soap is stupid. I wouldn't even care about that. But like, you, you know what I mean? It's like, I need to get a vacuum cleaner. I'm not going to buy the, the mood affiliation vacuum cleaner. And yeah, you have some examples of those, but like, come on, like my pillow, like who, who, like this is just, it's just culture war bullshit. And, and so I, I think that occupies a lot of like people's because it's just juicy, right? Lives of TikTok, all this kind of stuff. But the but the reality is like most people don't care about that. Or if they say they care about it, the reveal preference when they actually go to buy stuff is I'm gonna buy the thing that makes me the happiest in my just kind of like aesthetic sense or or product. And and really basic example. Oh, I'm you know, America first. Great. So you go to Walmart and you buy a bunch of stuff made in China that used to be made in the US, but because of a set of regulations and or it was cost, your revealed preference is I want more shit. 
So I'm going to go buy the cheap stuff rather than the made in America brand. doesn't even have to be a conservative or a Democrat, right? Or liberal. Like it's just like, a, Hey, I'm going to spend a little bit more because I know it was made kind of with quality and, and it's, it's providing a job for an American. Instead, it's like, I want the Vizio, you know, like we never make TVs in the US, but you, you get my point of like, I think people love kind of saying that they, they support that stuff, but the reality is they are American consumers and American consumers love cheap stuff and like a lot of it. And so I think that the broader, like, I, I don't think that the, the intellectual of wokeism is, is like a, a business opportunity as much as, I don't know, Vivek, well, what is it? Ramaswamy is wants to say it's like woking kind of building the non ESG BlackRock, like, ESG is just going to fall out of favor and BlackRock will just kind of slowly pull it back from the marketing website. And then the, the, you know, the pension in Florida is going to be like, okay, actually I'd rather be working with BlackRock than some new company. And, and, and so can he build a business there? Sure. Like, and, and it's not to take away that like you can't go make money, but BlackRock has like trillions of dollars in assets under like, you know, whatever custody or uh, management. And so like, I, I, I think, People underestimate how savvy these companies can be in terms of like, okay, if the winds are shifting this way, we're just going to, we're going to kind of dial it back. Right. It's like Nike is supporting Colin Kaepernick during George Floyd, but like, I haven't seen a Colin Kaepernick ad recently. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, the, the one other thing I wanted to point out though, cause you, we use the term equality, which I, I think is like a very important thing to, there is a quality of opportunity and then there's a quality of outcome. And I think when we talk about equality, it's actually more equity and not equity, the company equity that you get when you work at a startup and make money. It's equity as in, hmm, this person has succeeded more than me. I actually need to knock that person down because clearly the only reason that they succeeded in whatever thing that they did is some version of, you know, this is like intersectionality, exploitation, uh, white, white privilege, supremacy or whatever completely irrational, anti-American in my view, like way of, of doing things. Because what I think we can all agree on, even, even like the most woke person, is the equality of opportunity, right? Is, is something that we can all say, yeah, like any kid born into the world is an innocent kid. And, and getting that kid the opportunity to go to a school that's, that's, you know, like halfway decent, that they're safe, they're fed, like basic things that need to get taken care of in their life. Extremely difficult to go actually do in practice because a lot of it has to do with family stuff. But if you could have a magic wand and give everyone you start on the same starting place tomorrow, right? And we could somehow get rid of nepotism and these fancy internships that the people at Columbia who now don't have to take an SAT and write on their college essay. I don't know if people saw that. It's, you know, Columbia and their woke virtue signaling is getting rid of the SAT. So if you're an immigrant with no connections and get a perfect score, sorry, too bad. But if you're from Santa Monica and you're friends with, I don't know, some Hollywood producer and you're able to like kind of have an interesting college essay, now you're more appealing to Columbia. So completely hypocritical in, in that, uh, that regard. But equality of opportunity is something that like, that, that it's the Declaration of Independence. This is like, and, and it took us a while to get there for a lot of different groups of people in the US, right? So it wasn't, wasn't always from the beginning. And I think that a lot of good things from progressives uh, actually drive towards trying to make that happen more and more, right? Like it, it is a good thing that sexual harassment in the workplace is not allowed now, right? But the 
the version of equality that I think that the wokes tend to focus on is is equity. And and there's the meme which we share in our chats. I don't know if we can link to it in the show notes where it's like what kind of like these people are at a baseball game and they're trying to look over a fence and it's like equality, equity, and then like capitalism. And there's a whole bunch of remixes of this meme. But my favorite one is equity in theory of like, oh, you, you boost up the person who's a little bit lower on the boxes so that they can see over. And then effectively equity in practice is where you actually just cut off the legs of everyone who's naturally tall, which is basically what communism is. It's just like, okay, let's, let's take the power from the people who have power now and kill them. Like they did that in Russia, they did that in China, they did that in Cambodia. Like that is what happens with communism. And the version of equity that woke people in, in, in the extreme end, right, push is one step away from that. If you just look at any history, like they always couch it in, we need to kind of like do this. And then as soon as those people get in power, they start executing people. Like, and, and so we're, we don't have that happening tomorrow. But but I think like if if history is any guide, like that is a pernicious thought because it creates this idea that you can't succeed unless you knock down someone else or take it from someone else. It's a zero sum thinking. Whereas I think market-based capitalism, plenty of things that it's wrong with, or you know, pr- plenty of flaws, but it is unequivocal if you just look at the improvements to human society over the last 300 years in countries that are market-based capitalists, right? And Steven Pinker's alignment now, just, just just like fact after fact after fact, belief science, right? Like is, to use that term. And, and I think Tyler Cowen has an amazing book, The Case for Growth, is the single best thing you can do to create better opportunities for everybody, at, especially at the lowest end, is additional economic growth. And from my point of view, and, and I think a bunch of others, the single best thing you can do is push technology forward because technology is incredibly deflationary. And so what, what used to be this insane thing that's unattainable for the average person, now the poorest people in the world have a smartphone with access to the world's entire set of information, right? Like there's like a historical, like a recent thing that happened. I'll just point out. So, so there was this project called the OLPC. And it was run out of MIT. And it was this kind of like feel good. We're going to get these kids in, in developing countries, these really rugged, foldable, solar powered or crank powered laptops with like, I don't know, black and white screens. And, and we're going to make sure that the, every kid on earth has equal access to uh, information. Shit didn't work. It was like too expensive. Like, you know, it's like not market-based. There's no incentive to actually move fast and all that kind of stuff. Smartphones come along. Apple launches this, this product for really rich people. Steve Ballmer, very famous. $600? Who's going to be able to afford that? Like, ha, ha, ha. 15 years later, it's like you can buy a smartphone for like $25 on Amazon from some Indian manufacturer that like now basically like everyone on earth more or less can get to a smartphone with, with like a reasonable like access to data. And now Elon is going to start beaming this shit down from space. And so it's like, you, it, it wasn't like the feel good thing. It was just like the power law of technology and market-based capitalism starting in the US with really fancy consumers who were willing to wait in line and buy a thousand dollar luxury item. Within a decade, now everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket to use Mark's phrase. And so, so it's like, that is where I just like fundamentally disagree with people that they think that the best way in society to move progress forward is knocking other people down. And, and I think like that, that's why woke people drive me crazy. And it's, it's actually interesting is there's a lot of people who 
I think that they just consider themselves progressive or liberal. And so they're not as extreme. But because of the way the purity spiral works there, they're not willing to speak up. Right. And so they just kind of be like, well, I don't want to associate with the guy who says he's anti-woke because he must be Trump. Like that's basically how the frame gets done, the in-group, out-group. But but the reality is like most people, I think, generally like want other people to be able to live their lives the way they want. So they're, they're not extreme libertarians. They're just kind of like, hey, like I, I'm trying to live my life. You're trying to live yours. We should have a set of norms that, uh, you know, have a civil society. And I want to be able to go achieve my hopes and dreams, right? I'm Western. I, I'm an individual. I'm thinking about my career. And I think what gets perverted is if you have the extreme end over here in this purity spiral of we need to just knock everyone down, reparations, like all this kind of like garbage, then 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 you as a like a more progressive person, A, are not going to speak up against that. And so you just get lumped in with it. And then if you're willing to speak up against it, the, the easiest tactic is just to say, yeah, you're basically Satan incarnate. You're Trump. And it's like, okay, well, I, I can actually have my own set of beliefs that's not divided into this kind of like binary blue versus red. You can stay centrist as a person, but you can't as an organ. Like that reasonable person who constantly you just described constitutes like most of the country. They're always going to lose to the to the woke person in the context of an organization because they they will say, hey, I care about equality of opportunity. Well, if you really care about equality of opportunity, you'd realize that we actually don't have equality of opportunity. Um, and you know, these people had different parents, they had different education systems, they, all these different things that are actually like actual differences of opportunity. And so the term equality of opportunity, which, yeah, if you ask the whole country, everyone will say, yeah, if you like really grill into it, they actually don't, don't believe in it because in order to equalize opportunity, you actually kind of have to equalize outcomes, like to truly equalize opportunity. And you're like, well, I, I didn't mean equal opportunity like that. So then why even say equality of opportunity? That, that's the mix-up that we all get into. And it's this Mott Bailey thing where they, you know, they use it to mean something else. And so we might as well find a different word. Maybe it's meritocracy. Maybe it's sufficient opportunity if you're okay with some UBI or some sort of you know, uh, thing like leveler, some sufficient floor. But equality of opportunity is just a confusing uh, term that gives power to the people who actually want to equalize things. Yeah, no. And, 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 and I think like for me, it's, it's much more A, equality under the law. Right. And so I think that there was a whole bunch of stuff like gay marriage being one of them. Like, I think like, of course, that that should be because if you actually look at what marriage is from a from a law standpoint, not not a cultural or religious or whatever other uh, you want, you want to ascribe to that institution from a law standpoint, there are tax implications and the access to to medical and, and, and pensions and stuff like that. That's insane if, if we don't have that. Right. It's just like if people want to love another person, go for it. And like they should have those same those same protections under the law, equality under the law. But then what it gets turned into is outcome. And, and I think it's, it's, it's extremely difficult, right? There's no deterministic way. And like, you can't just be like, oh, well, this is that and this is that. And, and fortunately, we do have a process in the country for, for resolving this. I wish more of it was legislative at the federal level, right? Because then you don't have as much uh, stuff happening at the state level. But that's also our system. And you can move to a different state. And then I think that the second thing, which... For a while, it was more liberal, and now it's more conservative, and it probably will flip back to be more liberal as we have the Supreme Court. So, so we, we do have ways to modulate this. The equality of outcome is, it, it's never going to go away. And so that is just a thing that, I don't know, I feel really passionately about, like, one of my purposes in life over the long term is to make sure that as long as I'm here, that we're not headed in a direction that's 
that's closer to communism because if you want to read just just like uh, Google the Black Book of Communism, and it's I think probably overstated in terms of the total number of people, but a hundred million people are dead as a result of this ideology, more than basically any other one. You are, are you could argue Christianity, which then you get into the Holland of like oh yeah, how far or distorted is Christianity from from communism? But but basically it's like you get to that version. People start taking people out to the firing line and just start getting rid of people. And and so, like, I like the country. Like, I'm, I'm not moving from the country. I'm not expatriating. I know other people potentially have strategies there. But in my lifetime, I'd love to not have it get to uh, communist America. And and we have antibodies against um, the opposite problem. You know, ma- Nazism, you could say, is like master morality gone awry. Like, you know, and and it led to many millions of deaths and, are you know, is was a horrible thing. And we have built uh, immunity to it, antibodies to it, such that, and we call Jewish people Nazis sometimes, like we're so good at avoiding Nazism that we will misuse that term because we like don't want anything that even smells close to Nazism. We haven't built the same immunity to communism in the same way, where when we see the the same logic, but applied on different dimensions than class, we, we don't say, hey, this rhymes with that. And we should be really, really careful. And, and that's for a number of different reasons. But one of which is because, you know, we're, we're often we, we're often communist with our family. People say like we, we're sharing, we're equal. And so the idea like people don't understand like differences in scope, like how I would treat my friends is different than how I should run an economy. So I, uh, but I want to zoom back out because you, you said equality of outcomes not going away. And that's because egalitarianism is eating the world. And, and let me rephrase. I agree with you that. It's not as helpful uh, of a term to understand if you're trying to come up with startup ideas. Like, you know, software is eating the world is actually a much better uh, idea. But that said, when you think about why uh, companies, like how that software is going to be used, you know, are we going to have AI safety or AI accelerationism? Is social media going to be regulated or are we going to have nuclear? Like, think about all the regulations that, that exist. Egalitarianism eating the world is a much better explainer of what's happening there, once the company does get big, then software is eating the world. Software is eating the world has nothing to say about, about those developments. And you just, I was going to bring it up, but you mentioned it. The SAT, some pushback we, we, we got last time, maybe it was subtweeted, maybe, maybe not, was uh, this idea of like, hey, you sound like a boomer when you talk about wokeness. Like, why even talk about what, like, this is irrelevant, it's fading away. I tend to think, hey, maybe there's some economic constraints now, but you, you mentioned like technology is deflationary, we're going to have abundance and we're going to have good times again. And we're going to have these same pressures that we had the past, past few years. The reason why this matters, what we're talking about, is because they're they're removing the SAT. You, you just mentioned, like, and they're going to do that in more colleges. We like it's safe to say that that's that's a trend that's going to to happen. Well, especially because they're going to get smoked at the Supreme Court, right? So they're going to have to basically move to a model that allows them to do what they want to do without having any objective way of measuring people. Yeah, and and so if you want to understand like why is that happening, you need to understand these ideas. And if you want to understand like how to fight against that, if, if that's your prerogative, like you need to have better ideas. And it's not just ACT; it's going to be every like examination or everything that's trying to test for for pure 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 merit is is going to be um, fought at. And um, I'm kind of surprised by people who just like bury their hands in the in the sand and say, "Hey, I don't want to talk about this stuff anymore," where where everything around them is is changing in this way and this you know sort of egalitarianism eats the world and um they they don't want to do anything about it or they, they don't even want to acknowledge that that it's that's happening 
Right. So going back to our original point about upstream. So, okay, we sound like a boomer talking about wokeism. It's going away. So if you don't have like any intellectual framework or historical framework for where this is coming from and how to potentially explain it, no, Noah actually, I think has a great example of it. And he, he thinks it's a prairie fire and it's going away. Right. But, but he is robust in his thinking enough to say, okay, this is basically American Protestantism. There's this every so often you have an awakening, the great, you know, awakening in this case. And you could pull a line from, from Curtis, who has a bit where he'll go from Barack Obama to the abolitionists in a direct line, which in the middle, it's basically the American Communist Party. And it's just like each one is a splinter group of it. But like, so my push to the person is like, oh, you sound like a boomer talking about wokeness. It's like, okay, so first of all, what is, if, if, it, if it's going away in, in this magic thinking world where this, this intellectual tradition that's basically existed since, you know, cutting off Charles I's head in England, Whig history, uh, what, what's it getting replaced with? Like, what, what, are, what are the fancy cool people going to believe that's not woke? So if it gets rebranded as basically the same thing towards driving towards this equality of outcome, egalitarianism, which is Christianity, uh, what, 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 so it's just, we, we live in this special time where we're at the end of history, which we've talked about that. Like it, it to me, it's just like, you, you're, you're basically saying that this time it's different and yeah, it's, it's going away. So stop spending time on it. It's like, okay, cool. You're, you're downstream. Now. Like someone with a framework for what's actually happened in history to realize this isn't going to go away. It might get rebranded or it might go away you know, for the last year of the Biden presidency, or it's kind of tamped down. But what happens when Trump gets reelected, right? If, if, that, if that's a scenario, or DeSantis, do you think, do you think people are, uh, are, are going to just be like, oh, yeah, I'm just back at my job and focused? No, all the same shit's going to happen that just happened before. Also, a basic example, like Bush. People during Bush, and I, I was a younger kid, but like, they thought he was like the worst thing ever. Trump gets in office and then people are kind of reminiscing about like, oh, he was kind of this cuddly Texas guy where it's like, no, he, he propagated two, you know, crazy wars, right? Like you, you could have won the Afghanistan war in the sense that you could have removed the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda from any kind of hiding power structure without running a 20-year trillions of dollars, which have been invested in, in all this stuff. And, and by the way, Hillary Clinton voted for that. And, and like it, both, both sides in this kind of just general Borg of the, the kind of foreign policy establishment love going and spending money that could be spent in the US, right? We just, we sent another $400 million to Ukraine this week. Like, wh why are we sending money to Ukraine? Like send it to the South side of Chicago. Like, it, like that's a war zone too, right? And so it's like, I, I think... If, if that like intellectual framework for like this leading edge thing over here in culture war is actually just kind of part of this general thing of like, we, we actually don't want to confront the root cause of some of these problems we have in the US. And instead, we, it's all about like knocking down the people who are successful and whatever. It's like, okay, stop listening to podcasts. I don't know. And it's also like, there are many people who don't have to think about it because they don't have any responsibility. They don't run an organization. Um, but if you if you have to hire people, if you have to make make decisions about promotions, if you have to just deal with any sort of thing at, at scale that is making decisions that impact uh, potential inequalities, you're going to be faced with these these pressures. And, um, you know, it, it's often funny when um, immigrant CEOs have to deal with this for the for the first time and they come from uh, China or somewhere else. 
and and they they're just like totally alien to to this you know like ideology and they start apologizing and that was kind of a thing that tech did for like a decade was just kind of like hey it'll go away if we're nice to it basically <laughs> well I, that was me that was 2017 2018 at coinbase like people are like why are we i think we, like, we were working with a government agency that had something to do with the border okay there was like a, a slacktivist revolt and it had a team meeting like performative art basically at a team meeting about like are we you know like are we are we con canceling our con i don't know if it was like ice like are we canceling our contract where are those people now like biden has plenty of people at the border and like there's all this like public stats about it like, no coverage it's not on the front page of the new york times like it, and it's like uh temporary detention facilities for like children versus like kids in cages when it, when it's trump and yeah it's like the interface of that 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 president is very different than the one now and he's incendiary with Twitter and all that. So period. But like those people don't actually care about that issue because they're they're just still not driving it. There are activists who do care about that issue. So I, I will give those people credit that they've continued to be, and and they're actually willing to speak out against the Biden administration. But the average mood affiliation person who was just wanting to look cool within a Silicon Valley tech company in in 2017, where are you now? Like why why aren't you protesting what's going on at the border now? I don't know. Like it's it just it's. I, I think people, they get too much of their stuff beamed down from, you know, the New York Times and, and whatever set of liberal media or Twitter or whatever version they want. And so I, I think, like, if you think that stuff is going away, let, let's see what happens if, if uh, a Republican wins the presidency. So you, we can put a reminder for that, that episode when that happens and see how, how, uh, how calm people will be. Yeah, or, or even... Let's see what happens with AI. Let's see what happens with regulation on uh, on AI. Let's see how it's treated by the by the populace. Let's see what kind of pressures people are going to have to face who are, who are building the, the future there. Yeah, but here here's the thing with AI. It's already out. Like, Apology tweeted this. Like, the LLM from Facebook is on BitTorrent. Out of the box. Can't put that stuff back in. So there are going to be alternative AIs, and people will be thinking about how to make them more and more resilient to censorship and stuff like that. And so I... I Kind of don't want to take a victory lap, but in some ways, like we'll see how it goes. With Brian, I was like, the market is going to solve for, you know, they're going to be X number of them, and we don't need to like overly worry on on, uh, you know, OpenAI. Could be wrong. Like a year from now, I could be like, wow, I was completely wrong, and it's completely all captured by these these institutions. But software is really hard to put back into Pandora's box once it's out of it. Well, that's why it's interesting to see how software eats the world and egalitarianism eats the world, kind of like intersect in some ways, because what software does is it creates global winner-take-all markets. So it often creates more inequality, but it also like codifies them in the in the first place. Like think of something like dating. Uh, like this hasn't happened yet, but I, I suspect it will happen at some point soon. Like, so dating markets, they have done this. They create massive like inequalities, <laughs> global marketplace. But what they also do is they like, they know down to a T like what the inequality of, of matches is. And it just so, it, it like at some point there will be like a super left dating company that will say, hey, why does this group of people get less matches? Like, we're going to try to change the algorithm or change the thing such that it, it's equal, or we're, we're going to uh, make people aware of these these biases, these inequalities that previously didn't exist to the same degree, and they certainly weren't codified. The more that software eats the world, the more egalitarianism of the world is kind of like a, I don't say counter pressure, because sometimes they accelerate each other, but um, they just intersect in, in interesting ways.
Here's how that would work though. Let's say, let's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that as your example. So that company launches, they're able really good celebrities or whatever to like shame people into, you're using an algorithm that is not equitable. Okay, I'm still gonna use the other app because the revealed preference here is like, I really care about matching or, 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 or I, I, I want the max benefit to me as someone who, who has a lot of matches in that scenario. Okay. And then it, how do I, how do I virtue signal about that? We can both tell people we got, we met on that app, the, the like good app, even though we met on the, on the, the, the bad app potentially. So, so it's like that, that like classic example is you're going to get a bunch of people. And, and so that company is going to either have to change their product or because they won't have enough usage or no one's going to want to pay for Tinder gold on, you know, woke Tinder. But maybe maybe they actually go, oh, well, you can message anyone on the platform mutually if you spend one dollar. So you can then prove to your friends that you met on that. So then it becomes this complete uh, theater version of, of that. So like I, I'm outside of you changing market based capitalism in the US, I, I just think that like state versus real preference for consumers is still going to be a, a big driver of that. And I don't think actually most people care when they make the individual decision. But I don't know, could be wrong. Yeah, but it, it, it is just interesting how it, I agree that that's going to happen. And there's the sort of, we'll get into it in a future episode, but this like talk left, act right, um, that that the, uh, you know, PMC often engages in, we'll, we'll dissect that. It helps explain this broader trend of why consumer culture comes with social progressivism. That's that's what I'm trying to say. If you can say consumer culture, software eats the world, social progressive egalitarianism eats the world. Those tend to be a combination on certain. Um, well, and, and and I would say, again, the, the celebrity culture is very influenced by intellectual culture because celebrities want to be seen more as intellectual. And if you're hanging out, hanging out with the fancy intellectual people who tend to be more progressive, it cascades down, right? Yeah, we're at time. So maybe let's wrap here. Um, we will have Antonio on for, for next episode. We will. Yeah, I mean, he never ended up showing up. Huh? <laughs> we will thoroughly rib him. And if, if you're listening to this, give him a hard time that he has to, to make moment of Zen. And uh, we've got some uh, exciting guests uh, in, in the hopper. And uh, yeah, lots to, lot to look forward to. And wait, aren't, aren't we supposed to kick off our uh, new thing? Wait, which thing? I'm trying to remember. We, we refer to people by the different... Uh, Mozarts. <laughs> yeah, Mozarts. That's the new term for people to listen to this po- podcast. Yeah, subscribe to the newsletter. We, we share all the, uh, the books that we mentioned and articles that we mentioned so you can follow along. And uh, if you're listening to this, you're, you're a Mozart. Uh, Dan, thanks, thanks for doing this. It's been great. Good to see you, bud. Moment of Zen is brought to you by Riverside, the platform Dan, Antonio, and I use to record all of our podcast episodes with remote guests. Riverside captures exceptional audio and video quality, makes it incredibly easy for us to record conversations with multiple guests and then edit and publish within minutes. If you're hosting a podcast or often getting interviewed, use our code ZEN to get a 20% discount at Riverside FM. The link is in our description box. SecureFrame is the leading all-in-one platform for security and privacy compliance. SecureFrame helps you get SOC 2 audit ready in weeks, not months, and it's used by thousands of companies like AngelList, Coda, and Remote. I believe in the company so much I invested in it, and I recommend it to all my portfolio companies. Sign up for a free demo at secureframe.com and mention Moment of Zen during your demo to get 20% off your first year of SecureFrame. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts 
to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.